and welcome to this special series of the Eat Realty Heal podcast. These nine episodes coming up are a collection of interviews that I did with nine participants who are all experienced, kind, intelligent, caring, loving, passionate experts in the field of food security, Indigenous health, Black health, the health of people of color, soil regeneration, food systems, and more. I will be submitting these nine podcasts as part of my PhD dissertation by portfolio through Royal Roads University. And this is one of four parts that I have completed to be able to share at, at with my dissertation and to be able to put this information out in the world so that my PhD just didn't sit in a spiral bound text in a library collecting dust. So I really hope you appreciate this series and that we are sharing all of this research with you. I would love your feedback. So please go ahead and email us at nicolette at richerhealth.ca. If you found this series, these podcasts interesting, if they moved you, if you have more questions, if you have feedback, if you yourself are um, an expert in this field. And being an expert in this field really means that you either have lived experience, traditional ecological knowledge, you have academic experience, work experience, you may be an elder, you may be a sister, an auntie, a cousin, a professor, a researcher, um, it, it, and anything in between, a farmer. Um, you know, there is no one role in the world that is better or more superior or more elevated than another. Every single one of us on the planet have a role to play and each role is incredibly important. And it is time that we center the voices of individuals with lived experience as well as academic experience because the lived experience of our BIPOC folks all around the planet, they know what has happened as a result of colonization. They have lived it out day in and day out, and including all of the intergenerational traumas, the um, oppression, the suppression, and the, the lack of access to resources, and so much more. But we'll dive into these interviews because I would like to for you to hear it directly from the participants themselves who have lived, worked, and played in this space. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to this nine part series and I welcome your feedback. Enjoy. And sometimes we need to just stop assuming that we are the only reason that we're unwell. Yeah. If we could tell people, listen, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry, but you have a very terrible case of colonization Yes. <laughs> We're going to need to monitor your blood sugar so that it could go away. And if we can just help you to, to get along, you know, to make some changes, your colonization will, will get better because you'll have a different relationship to yourself and your food mm. and your physical wellness. But it's also all those other isms that we talked about, right? It's, it's the, the oppressive system of reverse feminism and masculinity and racism and all of those other pieces the the poverty the unwellness those things 
are are really the the cause and the barrier because if a person feels removed from something they no longer have that sense of responsibility if you don't have guilt you don't need to feel bad about having it mm-hmm. on the other hand if you are just given the opportunity to find your agency in it mm-hmm. empower yourself i now have a very bad case of the colonials i'm going to change my diet cuz the first interview that we're doing is with dr adrian xavier lickers now dr Lickers Xavier. She is the acting director of the Indigenous Studies program at McMaster University, where she has joined Indigenous Studies and Anthropology. She completed her undergraduate degree at McMaster in Anthropology, and she has earned both her MA and doctorate, just as I did, from the Royal Roads University. Dr. Xavier's doctoral work focused on Indigenous food systems, and she teaches in the area of contemporary Indigenous issues Indigenous food security and food systems, Indigenous food sovereignty, and Indigenous ways of knowing and methodologies. And her research interests include food security and sovereignty, Indigenous land connections, and rematriation, including Indigenous food ways and Indigenous ways of knowing. In 2020, she was awarded the new McMaster Indigenous Research Institute Indigenous Community Scholar Fellowship. And the project works within Dr. Xavier's Community of Six Nations of the Grand River Territory to grow the understanding and the capacity around food security and sovereignty. And most recently, she was awarded the Petro Canada McMaster Young Innovator Award for 2021 and 2022. And her work with that award includes undergraduates in Indigenous research focusing on building community. So I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Adrian Lickers Xavier here to the show today. Enjoy this interview. Okay, welcome everybody to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet. And today for this first ever interview for my doctoral research, we have Dr. Adrian Lickers Xavier from McMaster University. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting to get to be the first. Yes, especially because you graduated from the same program that I am in at Royal Roads Universities in their uh, doctoral, uh, doctor of social sciences program. So I am following in your footsteps. And before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that I get to be here in my office that is here on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the beautiful Coast Salish peoples of the Squamish and Lillooet Nation. And what about you, Doctor? Would you like me to call you Dr. X, Dr. Lickers Xavier, Adrian? How do you want to go by? Adrian is fine. When I was in the Masters at Royal Roads, I was Annie, and I've gone by that for years as well. So all of the options are open. I'm this is as casual as it could possibly be because knowledge is not fussy. Knowledge is not fussy. That's correct. I love that. And would you like to let us know what beautiful lands and territories you are? playing on right now absolutely I am uh, um 
actually on my my mom's traditional territory and well I'm actually on my mom's treaty territory so mm -hmm. I am uh, in southern Ontario six nations of the Grand River Territory which was traveling lands of the Haudenosaunee the Anishinaabe and uh, um, neutral Huron Wendat lots of people lived here but we are also part of what is the Haldeman Proclamation which was an agreement between the United States and Canada where six nations was um, granted land and so we are six nations one of the only places um where we actually all live in one community otherwise we all had our own separate nation um, homesteads and homelands so i am here in ontario in some rather chilly weather <laughs> yeah chilly I'm, weather I'm try all across <laughs> trying to right enjoy now. it and pretend like i love that Yes, yes. No, it was uh, for us a late summer here. And now it is the the chilly days are coming in. And yeah, I'm not looking forward to it, even though, like you said, you try and embrace it as much as you can, because this is where we where we live. So I am going to be going through a series of questions with you, but of course, this research project is using Indigenous research methods. It is also using narrative inquiry. It's all open-ended questions, unstructured, and so you get to storytell, and you also get to share your incredible expertise through all the knowledge that you've acquired simply through living, but also through studying academically, through working, through through play, through all of those things. Those are all valid, valid ways of knowledge. Um, the title of my research project is um, Decolonizing Our Food Systems, Narrative Inquiry into the Barriers to Accessing Foods that Reverse Chronic Disease. And the research question is, what are the barriers that Black, Indigenous, people of color face in accessing the quality of foods that are capable of reversing lifestyle chronic degenerative diseases. Now for our audience, I just wanna let people know, prior to the 1940s, there was virtually no diabetes, very, very few cases of diabetes in indigenous communities across Canada and across North America. It was a very rare disease. Whereas now we're seeing rates of diabetes and heart disease at being four to eight times higher than in non-Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous members. And there is a whole history behind that. And so for this interview, I'll be asking questions to try and understand really what are the root causes of these diseases that go beyond what our current Western medical system says are the causes of these diseases, which are obesity and alcohol consumption and lack of exercise. Now, those are very, very shallow, superficial um, reasons. They do exist, but with the long history of colonization in Canada, we have other um, deeper, much more um, important uh, um, root causes that we really, really need to be looking at. And that's why I chose to interview Adrian here today. So I'm going to start with um, some of those questions. So I know you did your uh, doctoral research as well on foods and food systems as well. And so from your knowledge and expertise in living, how do traditional, clean, real, whole foods keep us free of these chronic diseases and even reverse the, some of the chronic diseases, like I mentioned, like diabetes and heart disease? So um, 
first of all, this is like a basket. There's there's a whole huge basket of like conversations that go along with this discussion. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I learned when I was doing my research was that I had been running a food security program with my mom and we were like food security, people need access. It's about access to food. And yeah. the difficulty was, is having access to food doesn't always make you healthful, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and for myself, I, I, and I start every conversation, I have lots of, of these things and I'm going to do it here because at the end of the day, I still believe, I still believe this. If all you have to eat is one thing, eat it. If, if what it is, is Pop-Tarts or pizza or McDonald's, I'm, I'm surprised and shocked, but if all you have is, and Pop-Tarts is the one that for whatever reason comes up all the time, if that's what you have in your house, or if that's what you have access to, then, then I need you to, to do that. Only once a person has some sense of stability in their food, are they going to be able to get past the state of need? When they get past the state of need, then they can start to have agency in choosing, which is when you get into a conversation of food sovereignty and being able to choose the foods that you take. Because saying, I want to choose to eat pizza every day is fine as a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 40- or a 50-year-old, but somewhere along the lines, you have been trained to believe that it's the only thing that will make you feel good. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's emotionally, personally, socially, you know, it, it's a socially acceptable, it's, it's emotionally fulfilling. It's that, you know, it's that reward, it's that treat, it's that. So you decline those other foods, and they don't actually help your health. So what we started to understand was that what people were good and truly needing, wanting, missing, um, discovering that could change their health was the foods of their culture. And, and not just the physical foods, but the foods of their culture, the, the language, the, the camaraderie, the, the relationship that it means to be in the garden together, to grow the food that you love, the, 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 physical, the physicality of, of finding your own food out on the land and being in nature and connecting with other people and community and, and the food themselves. So all of those things are parts of that wellness that we were looking for, thinking food access was the answer, which is how I went from a food security master's to a food sovereignty doctorate and understood that when I walked away, I was talking about a food system. Mm -hmm. Can you um, explain the difference between food security and food sovereignty? Um, I'll like super simplistically, it's like Pop-Tarts versus organic gardening. Um, which sounds to me silly in some ways. Food security is defined by the Food and, um, and Agriculture Organization at the FAO as having um, sufficient caloric value of you know healthfully created accessible food um, every day to survive and thrive. Culturally appropriate, respectfully given, acquired is is a piece of that that's not always talked about, but is, is described. Um, La Via Campesina talks about food sovereignty as having just access, accessible, respectful access to food um, that is culturally relevant and per appropriate to the person that is eating it and the ability to choose. Now, food security is having enough to survive. Food sovereignty is the pinnacle of utopian hope 
to be able to choose exactly what, where, and when, and how you eat and even source your food. Some people will never reach that level. I, I don't think most people in, in the world right now will never reach that true, that, that highest of ideals ever. And a food system is the community that you are part of that relates to both of those things. So if you are in a food system where, for example, I live in a community and we opened our third grocery store this past year for in, in 30 years. Now, when I say third grocery store, I mean a store is open for a year and a half and then it dies. At 10 years, 20 years later, it, another one is attempted and, and it doesn't survive because the economics behind owning a grocery store in a community that is relatively small where we have become accustomed to leaving is, is not viable. You have to have more money than brains. You don't want, you have to be in it to not make money. Mm -hmm. um, so, or, or have something else that will fund it. Right. And so now there's a grocery store in our community. That's almost so expensive. People can't afford it. That's true of most grocery stores right now for lots of people, but the food system is about I'm that that's one aspect of my food system. My garden is part of my food system. My friend group is part of my food system. The, the local variety store is part of my food system because they have my staples. You know, um, that's, those are all the personal outward looking views of a food system. When we talk about a food system in a large scale, so um, in organizations like um, the Aero Food Institute out of Guelph University, they talk about food systems and they're talking about how does the government mandate agriculture and how do stores mandate like the profit margins on a on a product that comes from the store how does the northern store get sub subsidized by the government so that they can bring produce to the north that's that's the government's food system that is the national social food system and every single person is part of that food system as well whether we would like to be or not yeah, no, thank you for explaining that because I think it's and that original point that you first brought up was, you know, that if somebody has a Pop-Tart, eat it because if that's all the food that you have, I mean, you do need to have calories in your body to be able to survive at the end of the day. And if the calories are coming from a Pop-Tart or, you know, um, traditionally sourced potatoes, you know, um, from the ground or, 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 you know, other foods that are foraged for or, you know, grown in a garden or bought in a beautiful grocery store that has organic food. I mean, with, there's a huge discrepancy across our country and across North America in accessing these different varieties of food. Um, so I really appreciate that you did say that because there's a lot of judgment in our world too, right now with like, oh, that's what you eat and how come you're not eating better? But I just learned that, you know, a bag of cherries in Northern Canada, which some might argue Cherries don't grow in Northern Canada, so don't eat them, but some people might want to enjoy cherries, but $90, $90, nine zero for one pound of cherries. And I've heard, learned that in certain communities in Canada, many communities, if you want a banana, you know, you might get a banana if you're lucky, but you're going to pay $10 for it. Well, I, I can tell you when I started my doctoral work um, and I, before I started that, the research part of it, as a doctoral student, I went to campus in, you know, Vancouver Island, Victoria, British Columbia, beautiful, lovely, you know, this verdant, amazing place that could grow everything you could hope for. Um, and the very first time that I went out there for my master's program, 
um, milk was $13 a gallon. And I looked around and I called my mom. And I mean, I was a master's student who had literally just, I'd stopped all my other jobs. That was the first time I was not working at something else. So I was a student and I was the epitome of an adult student who was like, okay, I, I feel like I've just been fired from a place and I have nothing. And $13 a gallon for milk. I called my mom and I had grown up in a very different lifestyle. And I said, how is this possible? Like, I realize it's an island, but yeah, but still the next, the next time I went back, which was two years later, island farms had come mm. and milk was cheaper than in my community. Right. Right. I mean, food is a commodity, right? The prices are going up and they're going down and it all has to do with what the availability and, um, you know, supply and demand, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so would you say that cost is a barrier to accessing the quality of foods that are needed to um, help end mm. the chronic disease epidemic or, or what other factors do you see that are maybe more important than cost? Um, if we're going to talk about holistic, and I don't usually use that word, but if we're going to talk about a whole picture mm -hmm. of wellness and chronic disease, you have to really stop and look at individuals. So we're talking about black indigenous people of color. Yeah. First question that I'm going to ask is where is that person from and what are their foods? Mm -hmm. Because if I live in the North and I'm from the North, the last thing I'm ever going to like yearn for is cherries. Right. The last thing I'm ever going to yearn for is chips and milk. Those are not things that I yearn for. So unfortunately, my brain starts in the, like, the macro of this. So if we are going to affect health changes and reverse large-scale unwellness, I'm going to say the things that need to happen are not individual responses. Mm. climate change yeah uh environmental degradation uh yes end of the day cost of course that's that's a, an issue for sure access is an issue um but when i say climate change the reason why i start there is because things like i remember in my undergraduate days a billion and one years ago going to a community in mexico where they had drained the lake for drinking water Mm -hmm. Now, how do you tell a people who have eaten fish their entire lives that they now have to find a new way to exist and they become subsistence farmers because there's no freshwater shrimp or fish to eat because the lake is gone. Yeah. The very resource that feeds them the food that their body operates best on. So for me, we ran a program or I was part of a program with my, my organization um, called Healthy Roots. And unfortunately, it's not, it, it, is, is an, it is not in existence at the moment. Um, many of the tenants of it have been adopted by health services here in my community. And lots of individuals have, have taken it up. And what that is, is if we're going to look at starting to reverse that unwellness, we're going to talk about things like water security and food security. Absolutely. And then we're going to talk about food connections and access, because sometimes the true piece that will help change a person's perspective on food is 
helping them to see, realize, feel, understand that physiologically their body is going to respond to certain foods better. Mm-hmm. Now, do I respond to cinnamon buns better? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, they're just like my my body that the dopamine lights up. They're just, yeah, I'm just like ding 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 ding. ding. Yeah, you know, yeah. like there's this huge moment that happens. But the truth is, what my body responds to is, um, I and I know this to be true. Um, I visited Bella Coola, British Columbia, and my friend's chief gave me schlock. It's dried salmon. Mm -hmm. And my body went, hold the phone. Where have you been for the last 40 years? Um, And I found out when I got home and talked to my mom about this like amazing thing that I'd eaten. She's like, oh, we made that when you were a kid because we lived near a river. Um, having venison in my freezer at all times and this ultra lean meat um, makes me feel good like cinnamon buns do but I don't think about it every day because it doesn't have the same wow factor that sugar does Mm -hmm. salmon did the same thing for me eating you know as the older I get, the more I get closer to my mom's diet from when I was a kid. I want to eat the things that we've grown in the garden. I want to eat corn, beans, and squash, which in Haudenosaunee culture are our staple foods. They sustain us. It's what our program was called. It was called our sustenance. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the things that are closest to us culturally and our bodies physiologically responded to. We had have had there's a research study that was done at McMaster as part of our health and roots program and it tracked participants who over the course of 90 days ate a a pre-contact diet so pre-Christopher Columbus Uh and venison wild game you know fish the plants that you can find source and even the modern versions of vegetables that would have been from here and we found people with you know, reduced, uh, reduced need for medications, mm-hmm. their, their diabetes was coming closer and closer to reversing, because they were not in need of those things, because their body was ge- given the things that it actually desired. It's not the same to want, some, like, I want a million dollars. But I don't have a million dollars. My body wants wellness but we don't always have it even if we feed it the things we think are right Mm -hmm. and if we follow and and i i hesitate to do this because i don't like every system is different every person is different that's true and if you learn to listen to your body then you will find out what your things are but if i were to follow for example the canada food guide i would be very unwell Um, for a, a good many years i couldn't eat any of the nightshade family of plants so I couldn't eat, you know, like tomatoes were hard on me. Cabbage was hard on me. Any of the greens were hard on me. Broccoli was hard on me. Brussels sprouts, which I'm not sad about losing, but Brussels sprouts. Um, like there were all these things that my body was just like, whoa, no. Kale was an absolute, like no dice. You're violently ill. No, no good. But I could eat corn all day. And I don't, I'm not talking about like yellow sweet corn or bicolor corn. I'm talking about like our traditional corn, which you have to boil in hardwood ashes to make the hull come off, to make them large and accessible. And they are high, rich in calcium. Then I'm talking about, you know, beans that 
vine, I'm talking about squash that's grown with those other two things because they work synergistically. Then my body feels, it has no issues with those things. I don't have any of the physiological issues. But if you look at the food guide, Mm -hmm. I should be eating all those things, right? People advocate for a plant-based diet. And if I were to have eaten those things, I would have been very unwell. So we have to start conversations by asking the question, what are the things that I'm willing to listen to? Am I willing to listen to myself first? Am I willing to listen to my body? How often will I go back and question those things? Because six months can make a huge difference in your body's life. It can make all the difference Mm -hmm. between you hearing, this doesn't make me feel good. And hey, this is this is actually okay now because we're not giving it that other thing. My mom is gluten intolerant and it's not an allergy. It's just her body is like, don't do that. So for 50 years, she just didn't listen. Let it, you know, thought she knew better. Grains are important. Let's eat this whole grain bread. And then one day she stopped doing it and her body was like, see, see, we feel okay. Mm -hmm. And suddenly other things that she had been responding to, things completely unrelated to those grains, she now could eat because her body wasn't fighting her anymore. So there's a piece of that that you have to start with on a personal level. Obviously, I'm, you know, the assistance of hair practitioners is important. But if we're going to talk about the barriers to getting to that stage of life, we Mm -hmm. need to really talk about, do you know where you come from? Do you know what the foods are that your body is yearning for? Do you know what the things are that are of your heritage personally? Because I truly believe that those are a a piece of that wellness. When I I have been all over the world and I was... I'm always perpetually excited by the things that I come across when I travel to Mexico and I have that, I must have that face where everyone is like, Oh, you look just like my cousin. I am related to everybody. I've been everywhere. (laughs) And, and it's true. I've tested it out. Now I've been to Mexico. I've been to Sweden. I've been to China. And there is not a place that I went where people didn't say, well, you kind of look familiar. Do I, I think I know you. And I always tell them yes. And then I tell them to take me home to their grandma so that I can get all the good eat, right? Like I want all the cool foods and the foodie things. And that's the, the part where I think about that because what do you do when someone comes to your home? You show off the thing of your, like your family. Here's my family's favorite recipe for this. You don't pull out someone else's favorite recipe. Yeah. You pull out, you know, your fam- my, my grandma taught me and unfortunately or fortunately, for my grandma, it literally was cinnamon buns. Um, <laughs> this lovely indigenous Sami Swedish woman who was just, you know, got hooked on on the goods. Um, but every so often she would pull out other things. And my mom, from her, I got all of my grandpa's things. And he's the one who's from Six Nations. So when I lived my whole life not realizing that like smoked salmon and fresh fish were mm. like I I always told people I wasn't I'm, I'm like oh I'm not a fan of seafood but really what it is is I'm just spoiled rotten 
<laughs> about certain things. You know, like I'll eat my my friend um, grandma, and my friend calls her Grandma Rhonda. Grandma Rhonda's schluck, her her family's smokehouse salmon. I'll eat my mom's soup any day of the week. But when someone else presents me with like their watered down version of our food, I'm like, doesn't do it. Nope, I'm not. I'm not here for that because I know that those families, those family recipes really and truly have engaged that whole person on a cellular level you have changed your whole body and sometimes it's just to make you extra happy where you're like firing on all you know all systems yeah. are go and you're excited and sometimes it's actually at the cellular level where it's like diabetes can only exist in certain bodies if you treat it a certain way and mm -hmm. if you don't do that anymore then it can't exist it can't work yeah. that way it doesn't happen heart disease, all of these things can be drastically reduced by just stopping and going, okay, I might not know what my traditions are from my family or my heritage, but I'm going to test them out. I'm mm -hmm. going to try out all the things that I'm not sure about. I go to the grocery store and I look at food and I'm like, that looks really cool. I'm going to try it. And then you take it home and you're like, oh, I was wrong. But only if you listen, right? Like that's a, there's a piece of that. And these are all the, like, some of these are the very esoteric pieces of, of food wellness, but they're conversations we have to have about it Yeah. because very often we get locked into the, you know, health, health and wellness are direct outcomes of poverty. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I'm going to tell you now, chances are good that we were well below the poverty line when I was a child. And I had no idea. Not right. My mom grew every single thing that we ate from vegetables. Every single thing that came in as like, we had, we had whole milk that she traded for. We had mm -hmm. uh, a farm that was out behind the house where the neighbor grew um, lambs for meat. I had very fresh fish. We had uh, two rivers to choose from. We had salmon, steelhead, with trout, we had whole food. So my diet, and I mean, interestingly enough, my diet then was like night and day from when I moved to Canada because I was in the Western United States. But my health and wellness was nothing, was a direct relation to poverty only because my mom chose to eat the foods that she could source herself because mm -hmm. she didn't have another option. And she purposely chose to make sure that rather than bring something into the house where the only thing in the house is Pop-Tarts, she brought in knowledge. She mm. brought relationships in. She made friends with people and traded services and goods for food. She built a network. And we have to make a decision because that's the food system question. People talk about circular economies and people talk about, you know, our, our food system is broken my food system is not broken. I just don't like to garden. Like right. that's right. There, there's this thing. I don't love to weed. It's not gardening. I don't like, I don't <laughs> love the weeding. Weed. Yeah. You lost me. I, I will mound garden all day because corn beans and squash, you plant them together. The squash's job is to keep the weeds down. I'm like, I'm here for that. Historically, generationally, you are my food. You, even your lack of weeding tells me you're the right thing for me. Right. 
There's so much in what you just said. I had to take a bunch of notes here because I love, first of all, that you, you know, in asking the question, what are the barriers to accessing, you know, the quality of foods that can help free us, liberate us from these chronic diseases. It is a complex, a very, very complex um, answer. And we have to look at everything. There's some pieces in here that you really spoke about, like the cultural appropriateness of the food. There's another piece that you also spoke to is, you know, where I called it the food of our ancestors. So like knowing who your ancestors were, because you talked about knowing what your grandmother, you know, talking about the food that can light you up that your grandmother made, which is, you know, the cinnamon buns, of course, but, you know, she was right that, you know, your grandmother is still quite young in relationship to, um, you know, colonization or when it first started and, um, and pre-colonial times. And so, you know, it made me think about the foods that her grandmother ate and mm -hmm. what were the foods that her, and you did speak to that. So for example, you know, no, you know, I say eat like your ancestors, but not the wealthy ones, the peasant ones, because they're the ones who were forced to grow the whole foods. You did talk about whole foods as well. Um, being, you know, that is one of the challenges that we see now, refined foods versus whole foods. Yes. And, um, and then you also, I love this, talked about knowing yourself. So there's that piece that I'd like for you to chat a little bit more about, because do you think it's possible in this day and age where we are marketed, you know, all of these foods in the grocery stores, where we're told that vegan, organic, pop tarts are healthy you know like do you do you think that collectively we have the power to be able to know ourselves and trust our intuition because you said trust our intuition and I'm just curious where that intuition where it will lead us in this day and age we are not as um we're not as uh, and I'm trying to think of a, a nice way to say this we're not as lazy as we think. And I, and I say that because when we think about um, the, the labor that's required for foods and for the things that go on, um, I think of uh, like hedonistic creatures. A cinnamon bun to me is hedonistic. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm locked into that moment of like pure, like luscious enjoyment. But what we need to remember is that we also are from a generation of, and I say from, I'm, I'm watching a generation of Autumn Peltier, of Greta Thunberg, mm -hmm. of youth who are wildly aware of the need for change in the world. So I don't think I want to, I won't classify all of us or any of us as a generation that is lost to that potential because we are very aware of what we're doing the pandemic alone made us very aware I saw so many and social media memes were a light in in my circles um, with people talking about the very like stark line between the haves and the have-nots mm -hmm. and how the haves were completely like experiencing this horrible reckoning of pandemic awareness that they yeah. didn't have access to things and the have-nots were like welcome to the club we have like terrible like holy t-shirts and yeah. we've been over here without access to those things all, all of our lives systemically we're not shocked by this a shortage in foods and a shortage in access to certain things is nothing new to us yeah. 
you're going to find that there are like that's that's the moment when you realize that people have to make the decision to be mindful but the intuition is not lost okay good yeah i love that um because there's just so much hope in what you're saying you know like have we haven't reached the part where we're so far gone that we can't get back to that and when you talked about you know, the foods, the squash and the beans and the salmon and, you know, the foods that, you know, you remembered literally in your, you know, I'm saying this, I'm putting words in your mouth, your DNA, but, you know, from, from your ancestors and it's, you know, it's those beautiful whole foods. And I know for ourselves, you know, we, we have a plant-based whole food restaurant. That's how I help my clients reverse their um, advanced chronic diseases. But at the end of the day, it's just whole foods is what it is. And so when we would cook these foods, people would walk by our store and smell and they'd come in and they'd be like, that reminded me of my grandmother's cooking and they would light up. Yeah. And it's so simple. The foods are so simple. They're not complex. They're really, really easy. Yeah. You did help me remember a story when I was working with the Squamish Nation. We had a beautiful event after a year of working together and it was a dinner and we made all of these foods and on the plates there were potatoes and several members from the Squamish Nation, the elders, um, you know, the youth, they're like, we can't eat these potatoes. They cause diabetes. And so I said, well, actually, what I've learned is that, you know, indigenous peoples from all over the world actually ate potatoes for millions of years and were diabetes free. And that triggered some memories of like going potato gathering for these little nugget potatoes that are in Mount Curry and that are all over underneath our feet, underneath the earth, but we've been told, you know, don't eat potatoes. Mm -hmm. And so there's this remembering also that, um, you know, how, how, how do we go about that? Do you have any idea for how do we go about that? Reconnecting that remembering that knowledge of, of this concept of food as I guess, food is medicine, food is fuel, food is community, food is, food is culture. Well, for me, I think one of the, the funnest things about food, and I will, I'll say it this way, food is experiences. Because if you take the joy in food, the other things will come. Mm. I've never found someone who was ecstatic to eat a Pop-Tart. Right. Like, you know, like it's just, that's not a thing. Yeah. I've never found someone who was wildly excited to host a dinner party of like, and and I'm sorry if, if some people have like just cabbage soup with just cabbage and water like that's not yeah. you know the plain the very plain life. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most striking experiences I ever had was actually um, in the middle of the biggest of snowstorms. I got um, a seat at an, an un, unavailable table um, in a restaurant called Onoir. And it is the original one that I know of is in Montreal. There are several of them. There's one in Toronto now. Um, and you eat entirely in the dark. Oh, yes. Yeah. So here's the thing about Au Noir. You can eat entirely in the dark and that changes your perception of the food in the first place. Yeah. But you can also do what I did, which is you choose to not know what's coming. So I had no idea what was going to be on my plate when it arrived. They, they chose for me. Um, I got an appetizer, a main and a dessert. I had to just like feel my way around in the dark to find it. Mm. And that experience changed my relationship to food. I, I had always been like, because if you think of food as fuel, it becomes a very utilitarian 
um, it has the potential to lose its relationship building capacity. Yeah. Because all it's, it's building a relationship to like caloric value and intake. I can reduce my diabetes if I eat these six things and I'm just going to eat those six things for the rest of my life and I'm going to be healthful. Mm-hmm. And I already feel sad for that person. And I'm just like, oh, can I make you like something else? Anything? A potato? Pie? Like I, now I want to give you a cinnamon bun and yeah. like, it, it'll be made with, you know, I, I'll make it with something that's lower in sugar. I promise I'll figure a way around it. Like just something that's going to taste happier than that sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing of it is, is it's not that it shouldn't be utilitarian. There should be a, a level of food as fuel, but food is also medicine. Food is also love. Food is a love language. Food is a, a relationship grower. It's a relationship ender. It is, you know, it's a deal breaker. If you have to listen to someone eat that is really loud and you're not <laughs> one of those people, like there's a lot of things about food that are, yeah. are impactful. So when I think about like how this works, especially when it relates to, we have to remember that all of these conversations are underpinned by the fact that we are thinking of this in relation to people of color, black people, indigenous people who have actually had instances in their lives where the very things that would have made them well, ceremony, experiences, gathering, growing certain foods was illegal. We have to, like, that's not just like, oh, colonialism is the answer. It was illegal to do the things that were going to be part of our wellness. When you think about that, yeah, then I guess there is a reason why I sometimes feel like people automatically feel guilty eating the wrong things. I have a friend who is a very healthy person. She's wildly active. And she still down talks what she considers to be unhealthy food. Mm. Dirty, cheater. I'm going to, you know, she's not going to say, I'm going to treat myself and have my favorite poutine, which is like one of right. my favorites. I'm, like, who I doesn't love, love potatoes, <laughs> potatoes and gravy and cheese? It, it, they're basically their own food groups. I, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. But she still tells herself that it's wrong. Right. I'm like, first of all, you couldn't be thinner. You couldn't be in better health. You couldn't be more muscular, especially for someone who literally works, sits at an office for nine hours a day and then hikes for, you know, 18 every weekend. Um, Why are you telling yourself that's wrong? Why are you telling yourself that you can't enjoy what you are eating? I've been having this conversation with my mom just recently is like, why do we have to create negativity around the one thing that we're telling everyone else to enjoy? Mm. When we've been told for generations, well, you shouldn't do that. It's illegal. You shouldn't do that. It's bad for you. We don't Mm. mean to tell ourselves that, but that's part of that returning to awareness. What am I telling myself? How is that? Is that negative speak changing me? Is it, is it changing the food? Is it changing the food? Doesn't, the food doesn't care what we think of it. It, It's one of the most resilient, non-caring things about that. It cares about what it's grown in. It cares about how it's produced, 
but we the end end user don't don't matter to the food we we definitely need it more than it needs us so if we're going to think about that awareness and that change then we really need to think about how we are how we're approaching it as well because we have to do the same thing for ourselves how am I treating me Mm -hmm. am I treating me as if I am just something to be fueled like a car am I a commodity that my boss needs to show up at work am I a commodity that I am like and and I'll just say this I've watched this and many I have no children but I've watched this time and again how many moms have become the, the the lunch lady yeah I do not matter anymore as a human being this everyone walks in the room and looks at the baby and the baby only returns to me when it's time to eat Mm-hmm. and and yeah. we'll betide that mom if they are are bottle feeding and then they don't matter at all mm-hmm. am I treating myself like the lunch lady yeah you know and this what you just said here about um you know your friend and that judgment you know opinion call it opinion or a judgment about what foods are good or what foods are bad and then which you know can be a negativity as well. Um, Also to me is a barrier to also then being able to access the foods that liberate us from our disease, because then while you're judging the food based on, you know, that opinion of it, um, that this is good, this is bad. And wherever that came from, it takes us away from the awareness that we have of our, you know, that connection of the food to our body, that intuition, um, it puts fear on us as well. And, you know, is fear going to, get us closer to liberating ourselves from these these chronic conditions that can be reversed that can be prevented that can be stopped right so how is our thinking a barrier as well which is which is really huge which is really huge um you asked or you had brought up um you know you had mentioned just started to mention slightly um speaking about colonization and one of the questions that i have here Um, is how is colonization itself a risk factor for diabetes and other chronic health conditions within BIPOC communities? Okay, so I mean, colonization is the outcome. Like, it's the reason, right? Like, cause and effect, if we're going to be really Mm -hmm. sincere about it. So it it is, it gives us the answers to what the barriers are as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it still is one of those big impacts, because people don't think about, like, what we when I think of colonization and, and we use that word almost cavalierly now, mm. Oh, you know, it's because of colonization. Do you really know what that means? Yeah. Are you aware of why that's impactful? Like really and truly what it has done to you, to, to people. Um, and for myself, like I said, when I first introduced myself, I, I commented that I I'm on Haldeman deeded lands that the government gave, 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 gave to the six nations to live together where we were not a people who lived together in the first place mm-hmm. colonization created the opportunity for people to prejudge situations to understand you know created a system of relationships that are unnatural to us how are we supposed to stop when we grow and are taught continually that this is the way that we do things and that colonial system is still in place mm. when people think about okay well indigenous people yeah they have have it it's it's bad 
well, okay, how many, you know, how many Chinese people were killed making the railroad? How many black people were brought here? Not by choice. Yeah. That is colonization. That's not like, oh yeah, my family ended up here. Oh, okay. Yeah, mine too. Like the Dutch can say that. My family's ended up here because they came here from another country. But even the people who came to Canada, and that's the thing is I want to be very clear. Colonization is not something that families chose to do. Mm -hmm. governments chose to create systems of change that were for their benefit and value people came to north america not by choice either were they given an opportunity for this great promised land that was supposed to be something amazing the american dream is colonization Mm -hmm. in its own way because we are fed and told that it is something specific and the dream is that you can have a better life if you just come here and you work your ass off until you can't anymore and one day you might be one of the, the very hardworking who get wealthy. But for some people, their goal of that dream is actually just to be in a place where you don't have to fight anymore, where you don't have to worry that death will come. Interestingly enough, the very things that they're creating for Black, Indigenous, people of color, the life that they're fleeing, they've created. Mm-hmm. They've created a circle to give that history to someone else and again i am i'm i don't point fingers i don't um, this is not about blame colonization it's like the boogeyman it's out there the difficulty is is it's real so when we think about it in relationship to health and well-being and disease how doesn't it impact how isn't it a part of this conversation yeah it is it is inherent in all of these things if it was illegal to do ceremony that means it was illegal for us to do certain things Mm -hmm. certain things were part of our wellness if you can't have ceremony then you don't celebrate and part of our ceremonies in our culture are things like having cleanses in the springtime when you have been tucked in all winter eating only certain kinds of foods Mm-hmm. And if you continue to feed yourself those, you know, very rich, thick, heavy foods, soups, you know, higher in fats because everything is dried, higher in salts, all of those things. If you do that all winter and then you don't cleanse yourself in the spring, all summer long, what are you going to do? Yeah. Not much. You're going to lay around and then you don't grow the foods that make you feel better. So that in the fall, you can harvest to put things away so that that cycle continues. Mm-hmm. Like you can get really, you can pinpoint moments where colonization physically actually make changes yeah and not changes for the better when we're talking about changes I mean Um, I don't ever think of that as a possibility but maybe I shouldn't be so negative (laughs) well no but it's it's interesting because you said you use the term um you know the way we talk about colonization now we talk about in such cavalier way and at the same time um you know I meet people every single day and they they've never even heard the term They don't even know what it is. They don't understand, you know, why are we talking about reconciliation? Like they really are not aware Mm -hmm. and, and, and not just, you know, folks that are white or Caucasian, you know, like even people of color who, you know, have been raised in this colonized system and haven't 
you know, we're, it, we're so many hundreds of years in that it obviously makes sense that you're in it, but you don't see it, you know, um, you're in the forest, but you don't see the trees yeah. as they say. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting because sometimes when we hear, especially, you know, if you're in academia, there's certain terms that get used over and over and over again, and then slowly lose their meaning, like the term sustainability or the term, you know, colonization. Um, and I'm sure we're, we're going to arrive there with the term reconciliation. And meanwhile, though, we use it and I don't want to change the language too much before other people who are still haven't heard it. Um, so could you just explain in your terms, in your language, through your stories, mm. what is colonization for the person who hasn't heard it before? Well, first of all, I, the easiest way that I've described it to students, and it's terrible because mm -hmm. I, I live, I didn't realize I love POF references, <laughs> um, but colonization to me is, um, is easy to understand if you've ever seen the movie, The Matrix. Mm because it is a contrived world that has a system of checks and balances and rules that were created by someone we don't know. Yeah. There is a historical bent to that. So colonization as a system is the history of Canada means that in this instance or in this country, colonization was that process whereby people came to this country being told certain things about how to get here and all of the political players the very fact that right now we are in a colonial renewal we actually are in a colonial renewal right this minute because the queen just died and the king is being reinstated as the figurehead of canada mm -hmm. I mean, he may have, I don't know, vacationed here as a kid. He might have gone to school here, you know, in the summer camp or whatever. Um, he is nothing to do with our country. He's not, you know what I mean? Like he's not part of us. Um, but he, he, in his figure, is the reason for this country. So colonization is about understanding that there is an entire system of politics um economy history at play that we are completely unaware of that so many of the decisions that we make are impacted by that history people's presence in this country that are not indigenous is a result of that level of colonization mm -hmm. so when i talk to students about colonization i explain to them that we're talking about a system both of history action and knowledge because people make choices every day based on that history, but they choose actions, whether they know or not that they're, you know, racist or, you know, decolonial or colonial. Mm -hmm. If you don't know, how would you even begin to, if you don't know you're in the matrix, how do you get out of it? Exactly. If you, if you want to be decolonial, what do you want to return to if you are not from this country? Like, do you want to go home to a country you've never been part of? you want to go home to a country you maybe weren't even welcoming anymore like people also need to understand that part of their heritage when people think about like what is the history of australia why are the indigenous people there what were the non-indigenous people there for colonization is a system of control and we don't always know that we're being controlled by something but we sometimes it's ourselves Sometimes it's that system of knowledge. 
I'm glad that you brought that up because it is one of the things that I was curious about, you know, with doing this research if, you know, education and education and knowledge, I'll put the, I'll use the two terms together um, because they mean different things, but a lot of times we think of them as the same. And so education, knowledge, and experience and the, and potentially the lack of knowledge that we are even within a system of colonization as being one of the barriers to us not being able to even start to think about what systems we need to be able to have access to the quality of foods that will keep us free and liberate us from these chronic diseases as well. Yeah. One of the most interesting things that I ever, um, as, as an instructor, as a faculty person, um, when I was a grad student, I was teaching um, at Queen's University and I had a student come and she did her research assignment and presented it to me because I, I don't stick to the formal. I'm, I'm good with, I want storytelling to happen in a way that is, is meaningful. Mm -hmm. So her, her midterm assignment was, um, it's actually, I think, I think it's public on YouTube now. It was a spoken word poem mm -hmm. and it was beautiful. Uh, it was probably the most well-researched paper I've seen to date um, because it was so personal. And it was the story of Indian indentureship in Trinidad. Mm. And she came to me when she handed it in and she said, I had no idea when you talked about colonization that you were talking about my family too. I said, we are not the only, we're not the lucky ones here in Canada. This, we're not the only place this happened. This is not the only situation where that is a truth of our history. Yeah. And so when she started to do the research, she, she built a relationship to her family, to her history, to her lineage. Um, she even learned pieces of the language that she had never had access to, but she'd never known she should ask. Mm -hmm. And when I think about that, I, I use her as an example still. Interestingly enough, she's gone through, we, yeah, I still... I will probably forever think of her when I think of teaching because she thanked me once for welcoming her whole self into my classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think about that when it comes to food and wellness as well, because if we think about, especially when we're talking about fighting chronic disease, how do we not welcome our whole selves into that conversation? Am I going to fight chronic disease by asking about pharmaceuticals? Probably not. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not my first go-to. Am I only going to think about it by um, thinking about, okay, well, I need to exercise more. Uh, very often in health fields, you don't hear the word exercise without hearing diet and. Yeah. And they're put together and then they become something else. Diet and exercise is like a monster that lives in your closet where you're like, I need to eat better and do more. Um, I jokingly in my family and in my doctor's office, it was eat more beans and drink more water. That was, those were the things that I was told those that was literally like my health recommendations from my healthcare provider for a long time, a long time, yeah, far longer than I think is appropriate. Um, yeah. But when I think about that, and I'm, and I try to explain to students, because I have taught for a couple of years now, introductory introduction to like indigenous issues. And I explained to them, like, where would you like me to begin? 
as an individual Indigenous issues? Are we talking about mental health? Are we talking about wellness? Are we talking about disease? Are we talking about social issues? Are we talking about, you know, economic issues? Are we talking about the fact that the government has issues with us? Are we talking Mm -hmm. about the fact that, you know, other people have issues with us having a relationship to the government that they don't understand? Because I think we all have issue with that. Yeah. Whether we mean to or not. And sometimes it comes across as very, you know, unhealthy or or racist or um, angry on on all sides yeah because no. we don't we don't know we don't know why we and, and that that too that is an example of where colonialism is coming out yeah I can definitely relate to this story of your student because I grew up not knowing anything about colonization even though I know we had studied it in school but we really just studied it from a um <clears throat> you know very very high level like perspective and which really never landed and which of course never even realized you know made me realize that oh I I am a person of color didn't even know that for the longest time growing up I was outed as a person of color Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and then didn't know what oppression and repression was um wasn't really aware that all the acts of racism that were I had experienced were even acts of racism like it was you know we're just not taught these things and so I was a big awakening for me and when I went back to visit my grandmother in Malawi and saw how she lived and saw how different it was and there was a deep sadness because it all came in I was like whoa like I realized I was in the matrix Mm -hmm. and I realized it being a person of color being white my dad's white um Austrian you know like it you know you know it just it all came unraveling for me so and and that was huge because just like she experienced and just like you said it's welcoming your whole self and it's when you see yourself as this whole being of past present and future when you see yourself as these different mix of all these cultures when you see yourself as the things that you've lost but the opportunities that there are to gain um you know in in this becoming whole it's it's quite um it's quite healing mm-hmm. it hurts but it's healing um there's another piece that you brought up too that I hadn't actually come across at all in my research. And maybe I just didn't see those articles because I wasn't looking, but, you know, definitely we know that within colonization, there's a lot of racism, um, obviously. And, um, but I didn't actually think of it as it being, you know, could be listed down as one barrier to also the chronic disease epidemic that is upon us. And it just made me realize too that that in itself can hold people back like just like you know not having access to the foods that bring them home to themselves um you know just like not having access to water but also having continual racism and you know that having the government having issues with us is also one of the things that prevents us from being healthy mm-hmm. as well you might have the knowledge you might have the awareness, you might be out there gardening, you might be out there eating the food, but you constantly have these, um, you know, these, this oppression continually and that in itself can definitely prevent us from being whole and healthy as well. Um, 
I'm just looking at some of the questions here, which, you know, you speaking about racism, there's a book that just came out called Legacy that really talks about how the trauma of colonization is really one of the root factors for, for all the chronic diseases that are upon us. Um, and, you know, when I mentioned that, you know, what does that bring up for you? Um, you know, there's, my brain must not work like normal people because there's so many <laughs> and please understand i don't mean that in a negative way because i think it's great and i i am happy to live in this um but i i i'm always when i start to answer a question i have to stop myself i'm like okay it's about to get weird here let's get weird how about that so when we talk about things like racism i think of some of the stories of people that i have known over time um i have done some different jobs in my lifetime and I have seen people deal with um unwellness in so many ways but when I think about racism and and like the legacy book that you mentioned I worked at a water treatment plant and um I had to convince people in my community that the water was still safe they still were they still believed that you know despite that fact and and it doesn't mean that the water's perfect because it still is not great there's still but there those contaminants are environmental they're not like from this um the standards that are expected of people are a piece of that so when i think about about racism i think about like water i think about um the reality of who has access to what and why. Um, one of the really cool, one of the really cool things that I got to see was a lot of racism when I was running a food security program, um, in the sense that I got to meet a lot of people who were really wildly passionate about caring for people um, who were like migrant farmers, migrant farm workers in southern Ontario. A huge majority of our summer. Um, ability to eat comes from people who are not from this country still mm -hmm. um, and yet they have no access to health care that's supported they have no rights in this country they are not residents and I think about that because at some level black indigenous and people of color in this country still have that historical knowledge they still feel that they mm -hmm. feel that sense of not belonging or not being wanted here but needed in some ways so you're a migrant farm worker and you come here and i see you you know making choices about what you're going to buy at the store because you only get so much money and then you want to support your family at home you're the people i'm telling if you all you have is pop tarts I, i'm here for you that's i go with the pop tarts yeah. But you work in a place where you grow so much food for other people to eat. And then I think about listening to my my friend who's passed away now. And she fashioned herself the mascot of our original farmer's market in 2011. And she was like in her 70s. And she was very sassy about everything. Um, and she said as a kid, she was the oldest sibling. And she grew food to feed her siblings because there were 13 of them. And her parents grew food for a farm, like for production. So they worked every day on a farm, so they didn't have time. So she grew it at home because they didn't, they weren't allowed to take the things that they grew. Yeah. 
And then I think about the work of people like Ian Mosby, where he talks about the fact that there are Indigenous people who grew food for residential schools that they never got to eat. Yeah. The, the residential school here in Brantford is called the Mushhole because of the gruel that they ate, that mushy, oatmeal-y, whatever it was that mm -hmm. I just picture is horrible. And they grew food all summer long for other people that they were never allowed to eat. And that, I think, is the reason why, for myself, I, I tell people all the time, like, listen to yourself, but enjoy those moments, too. You should not always be censoring yourself. And that's that moment where I realized that that's not, that's an entire system of racism that's occurring, mm -hmm. where we are told that we are good enough to grow it, but not eat it. Yeah, and you remind me of a story from Christine Baker. She's an elder from Squamish Nation, and she we were talking about growing food because there's all of these food programs, you know, that are created by charities that go into communities that don't have access to food. And they're like, let's build food boxes and food gardens, and you know, let's bring in this technology to grow food, grow food, grow food. And we think that is the answer. Which yes, it would be nice to have freshly grown food in a community, but the way these programs do it is they come in. They build it, but there's no relationship to the food because they're planting foods that maybe aren't culturally appropriate. There's also um, the lack of awareness of how to grow food, when to harvest it, what to do with the food once you harvest it. Yeah, what so, if you've got it and then <clears throat> it's just there? Yeah, and, th and that's what they said. They said they grew all this lovely food in Squamish. They built 18 garden boxes, but then nobody knew anything about when to pick it or what to do with it afterwards. Yeah. And so then that was the challenge. But one of the other pieces that she brought up, she also said, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, somebody come in and say, let's just grow the food without considering the trauma and the history around just growing the food, which is exactly what you talked about. And yeah. she talked about turnips and she said, you know, so while the, so it, she remembered being in the residential schools, and the kids would have the back of their spoon and they'd be given turnips because who they were growing the food for, they didn't want the turnips. They're like, turnips are not the good food. And so they gave them to the indigenous um, peoples and said, here you go, you can eat all the turnips you want. So on one hand, there was the trauma of the farming and not being able to access the food. But then there was also the the comedy, the humor around you know, in the class when the teacher would leave the room, everybody would start chucking their turnips and would make this loud crunching sound, but then the teacher would come back and they'd have to hide them, you know? And so, so many stories around just what farming in itself, this concept of farming as, um, as a perhaps not culturally appropriate, you know, act also as, um, yeah, just the, all, all the emotions that come with just understanding what farming did to people, what it is doing to people. And again, like you said, the lack of access to the foods that these farmers, these migrant workers, you know, they don't even get to access the foods that are growing. Yeah. And it's still happening today. Oh, yeah. This absolutely. is not 100 years ago, 200 nope. years or 300. This is still nope. happening today. A month ago, I went camping. I saw migrant workers coming off of the bus on a Friday afternoon at Walmart and mm -hmm. seeing what they were choosing to put in their cart. And then yeah. seeing what they chose to put back when they didn't have enough money. Yeah. Oh, I don't have enough for that. I'm just going to put that back. I'm going to pick Gatorade and water. Yeah. Yeah. Versus and, the whole foods that they would have yeah. consumed and, and eaten. Or what they grew this week. Or what they grew this week. Exactly. And the thing of it is, is it, 
in this instance, that's a huge thing for me. Like you've talked about these barriers that you keep, we keep talking about the barriers to, to wellness. And it's like, okay, so should we just, okay, well, barrier number one, trauma, because that's a barrier. Mm-hmm. A number of people that I know who refuse to eat certain foods because it's all that they had as a kid. Yeah. They refuse to, they refuse to grow food. There's an entire, one of the things that I found, and I, I won't say that I know this for a fact because I didn't quantitatively do the research. Mm-hmm. Qualitatively, I listened to so many stories over the seven years that I ran the food program with my mom of people who would walk into the kitchen in the fall time when my mom, who knew how to not only grow, but also then harvest and then process food to save it. The number of grown women between the age of 40 to 60 who walked into those kitchens and burst into tears because the kitchen smells like my grandma's house in the fall time. Yeah. Only to turn around and say, I don't grow food because that's what poor people do. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that you grew up with your parents who were on welfare and every check day you ate pork chops and macaroni. And on the other days you ate macaroni and tomatoes but you won't grow food that smells like your grandma's house because she only did that because she was dirt poor. Yeah. And dirt poor really just means you had a dirt floor. So is trauma a barrier? Yeah. Trauma is a barrier. Is history a barrier? Is colonialism a barrier? Is, is us getting out of our own way a barrier? Yes. Is colonization a barrier? Is society a barrier to wellness? Sometimes. Yeah. If you, if you see any marketing, yes, it is. If you are in the wrong, if you're in the wrong subgroup, you will never be marketed organic goods. Yeah. Social media will help with that. Who you know and where you live will actually predicate what you are exposed to. Mm-hmm. So if you grow up in that right neighborhood, right neighborhood, you will get the chance to see the things that you might not ever actually connect to because they don't resonate with you at all. Yeah. But they should. But they haven't because we are taught that's not for us. Yeah. Well, and and this piece too that you bring up about, you know, looking at farming as being something that only poor people did. And so we see that, you know, capitalism has then done that to us. We have seen that in, you know, wanting this desire to be rich. And so wealth, this desire for wealth, and then which has told us that, okay, certain actions are only for poor people, certain actions are for wealthy people. And then that also then becomes a barrier in itself for us being able to achieve wellness overall. And I've seen this with working with um, individuals from um, Japan and China, where I say, okay, let's reduce the amount of processed meat that you're eating. Let's reduce the amount of meat, maybe in general that you're eating. Let's start to bring in more vegetables. And they've said, but no, like when my family started to make money, we start to eat lots of meat. And then I said, well, what did you see happen then? And he was like, oh yeah. And then all of a sudden health started to go down because eating squash and eating beans and eating rice became what poor people did. And so- and the hard part is, is, and it depends on your, your, your place and your space, because mm-hmm. I, I understand that. Like we have, um, there's a dietitian who works in our community and <clears throat> she regularly has, you know, plant-based eating classes and, and plant-based, you know, approaches, and she's offering all this information and it's wonderful. 
-hmm. And the problem is exactly like the person you're talking about, our immediate inclination is to be like, well, why would we do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in our instance, I this is why I remind why I remind people all the time. There is a retraining that needs to happen if all you've been eating is processed meats and meat. Mm -hmm. And it's a personal, you know, it's a process. Would I ever eat a plant-based diet? I did for almost two years when I was a kid. I ate, I told my mom, I'm vegetarian. That's just, and I, I had read about it as a two-year-old and she's like, okay, first of all, I shouldn't have let you read apparently or something. <laughs> I told her that was a thing. So I, she, yeah. you know, had to strive to make sure I got proteins and, you know, appropriate things for growing and all of that stuff. But now to look at it and I laugh because I'm like, no, I'm sorry, but there's just no bacon plant that I've ever seen that tastes as good as, as bacon. <laughs> yeah. But on the other side of that, I, historically, I also think that my ancestors would have been, we're omnivores. We mm -hmm. are, we are people who eat whole real food of yeah. every kind. Yeah. Now, does that mean that we're going to eat a whole bunch of meat all winter? No, no. Yeah. Does it mean that it's going to be balanced in our life? And by balanced, I don't mean three balanced meals a day where you have meat at every meat. No, mm -hmm. I mean, balanced with nature. Yeah. In the springtime, when the babies are out, do we eat those animals? No, we don't because the babies are out. Mm -hmm. Do we harvest them so that we can eat them through the winter? And then it's like the times of good, right? You have all those cool meats and the salty things and the fatty stuff and that's wonderful but that's balance that's seasonal balance that's cyclical balance that's generational balance mm -hmm. if you are refusing yourself something whether it's because of history because of perception you know sometimes it is trauma sometimes it's not one of the things that we saw happen a lot was those people like we taught classes and I say we my mom taught classes and I put people in front of her I found people right. to come and take these classes and because my mom is a gardener she, she can yeah. grow everything but what we did was we put people in front of her and and I said to my boss once he's like what would you like this to do eventually I said be useless I would like this for eventually this program to not be necessary and mm -hmm. people to be like, I don't even know why that's around anymore. They just like, they're teaching stuff we all do. Yeah. But for the first four years, the only people who were in our classes were grandmas. Mm. And the reason for that is because in our community, they were the generation who was disconnected where gardening was for poor people, yeah. where they refused to do it because they were made to do it as kids because they had to do it to survive. Nobody wants to feel like they're in survival mode. Yeah. So do they want to go out and buy things? Absolutely. They do. I understand that. Yeah. But when they walked into the kitchen and it was canning season, did they cry every time? Absolutely. They did. Mm -hmm. And in reverse, because everybody's like, you need to teach kids so that they don't get to this point. That's nice. But what happens when you go home? No kid who's seven years old is going to go home and run his household. And yeah. if he does, we got a bigger problem. Yeah, exactly. But what will happen, and it happens in this day and age, and I watched it with my mom, kids will go home and influence their parents and their grandparents. 100%. But we did both sides of that. You teach grandmas how to can. You teach them how to garden. Who looks after the grandkids? The grandmas. Grandmas. Yeah. So now, now we've got 
twofold coverage. We've got grandkids learning because grandmas are coming to class and we let the grandkids come. Yeah. And they're super excited. And those kids go home and they look at their mom. They're like, why are we eating this junk? Grandma's growing stuff over there. We should just eat yeah. that. Miss Kitty says in the greenhouse that we can grow everything that we need. So then you have grandchildren who have that basis of knowledge. So you right now have those two generations that are hit. The yeah. problem is, is if we think in terms of seven, seven generations we have to think about. So if I am one of seven and the next six are after me, I have to be able to teach the next one so that they know, so that they don't have to go through what that grandma did mm-hmm. because they will grow up knowing. The problem is, is the six that came before me don't know. Yeah. So if we teach the seventh generation behind us, then the next one might have an idea because their kids will watch those grandchildren. Suddenly from the seven to the two, the two is catching it because they're spending time with grandma. Yeah. And, and it was a shortening window. And we watched that shift happen because the first year there were only grandmas in our classes. The next year there were grandmas and daughters. The coolest class I ever saw I got to my mom made me come downstairs I was writing a a grant application or something probably a paper for school she came I she texted me and she said you need to come downstairs I was in my office upstairs she was teaching a class it was a canning class and there was a mom standing at the counter with a four-month-old baby on the front of her and the baby was playing in the fruit and her mom was beside her and so was her mom beside her wow and four generations can jam for the first time ever together on the same day wow and they came back to a bunch of classes because they're like think of what we could do our family could be different I don't care if there's sugar in the jam. I don't care what the food is. The minute that that connection was made, that loop got closed Mm -hmm. because that family, the whole family will never, ever go without knowing. But it took that great grandma. I didn't know she was a great grandma at the time because at the time when I met her two years previous, she was taking a gardening class and that baby wasn't born yet. Yeah. Those four generations will always know that they can care for themselves together. That is amazing. And yeah, that is, it brings up that story in itself brings up so many pieces for me because, um, you know, we teach retreats and we have individuals come from all over and come to the retreats and we, they cook that's what they do. And yeah. so we say, okay, let's start cooking. And then we have all the vegetables, we have all the foods, we have everything. And many people will hold up the food and say, what is this? Mm-hmm. They've never actually held the food unless it came in a box or a bag in the freezer or something like yeah. that. So I love that story because just that baby playing with the fruit and, you know, the, the family being there and they're seeing the transformation of like these real whole foods into something that they can like be eating and they're creating the memories together. And they're, I mean, it has all the elements of, of really what, if we could all be doing this, you know, I can see us, you know, achieving that wellness that we're all craving. There's another piece too um, that you had said earlier, um, which reminded me of the documentary Gather, which I don't know if you've seen it. 
And I love it because there's the high school student in there who does the research and she says, you know, when Indigenous people, when they eat beef that's industrial raised versus the buffalo, you know, what eating the buffalo doesn't create, like contribute to the conditions of diabetes from like the high fat and the high everything else and the high salts and the processed meats and everything versus um, the way that we are now, you know, harvesting and growing, um, growing these animals for mass consumption. And so they, there was that part too, that again, brings me back and makes me want to because I teach plant-based whole food, but it's reminding me that more storytelling, more history, more, more everything needs to be brought back in because it's not just the context of eat these foods and you'll be free of diabetes at all, but it's more about the whole foods. And then, which brings me back to Africa and just seeing that in the village that I was born where there's no electricity, still no water, nobody has to say, can I eat this? should I eat this? Nobody would go to a dietitian and say, tell me to eat just beans and water, beans and water. Like you yeah. said, you yeah. were told. And, and I really do wish that we can all get back to a place where, you know, we can pick up food, eat it because it's wholesome. It's nutritious. It's tasty. It has great memories. It has, you know, all of those elements as opposed to just being like, oh, it's full of calcium or it's full of sodium or, you know, it's become very science-based and, and really um, it's this reductionist attitude of like food and missing the entire context of it. So now I want to take that just for just a minute, because there's, we've been talking about this and I, I strive really hard when I work in Indigenous research to not be deficit-based. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go back to a time. I tell people this all the time. Mm-hmm. I like driving my car. I like having yes. air conditioning. I like having, you know, a, a furnace in the wintertime. I like not smelling like smoke in inside my house. I want us to not think of food and this journey as a deficit. We're not going mm-hmm. back to a time when, because what you're talking about is removing options I've built so many relationships with people food places and things I want to be able to take them all with me forward Mm -hmm. to wellness so if you think about it in that respect we're we're smart people we would have met no matter what we would have met even if you had stayed in your village it would have happened and you would have brought the foods that you didn't have to question just like I would have said to you, my mom's been growing corn beans and squash in a, in a pile my whole <laughs> life. Do you want to try it the way that we eat it? Yeah. We would have gone to Mexico and had almost exactly the same ingredients cooked in a different way. Yeah. Same food. Yeah. Different so, herbs, different spices. Yeah. That's different right. style of cooking, but still the same food. You added yeah. hot peppers. We didn't. That's, you know, yeah. we added salt. It's fine. Smoked yeah. turkey. Um I think that that's the thing that we need to, I am, I'm constantly strive for is to remind people that what we're doing is not seeking the past. Mm-hmm. What we're seeking is for you to renew your relationship to yourself through food, through wellness, and to really be open because there are foods that I eat now that I probably didn't eat five years ago. One of my favorite foods, literally one of my favorite foods right now is because I took a trip to China. 
and it's eggplant prior to this i was like eggplant yes. parmesan was like you know that and baba ganoush but neither of them traditional foods to my community neither of them traditional foods that i would think of immediately but i had some like candied fried eggplant when i was in china that just like knocked my socks off and i it's a staple in my house it's still a whole food yeah i don't i refuse to limit myself to think that corn beans and squash are the best for my body and the only yeah i'm still a west coast kid i was born in the west coast you know like i said my everything lit up when i had that dried salmon that smoked salmon yeah. it tasted like it tasted like coming home and that's the thing for me is when you are doing this i i hope and 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 maybe i'll just i do this i'll do this to you too because i do it to people all the time i want to challenge people all the time mm-hmm. i i challenge them to find joy in the things they share with others in the foods they share with others that moment when I went to Eau Noir and I ate in the dark and I couldn't see what was coming and I had no idea what it was was the most exciting meal that I've had maybe ever it was more exciting than knowing my grandma was making cinnamon buns at Christmas because I had no idea what it was and I was sure it was going to be good but I also didn't have any of the social barriers of people watching me yeah of seeing what it looked like I realized that presentation is a part of food and it does make a difference if it shows up on your plate and it's Mm -hmm. like lumpy and brown and it's like it looks like it's going to have legs if I'm not careful like I'm not sure (laughs) this looks sketchy if those things are removed try that I urge people all the time to to be open to that excitement because part of that excitement is think about someone who you know, takes up that end exercise from diet and exercise and they become, you know, they're like wildly fanatical about going for walks or hiking or jogging or whatever it is. And I haven't, I I still haven't figured that out for myself because I don't have that. I have found that there are things that I love. And sometimes the thing that I love the most is finding something that I enjoy and sharing it with other people. Mm-hmm. how many times have you had someone who you know you you always know when you're in your block who grows zucchini and you avoid them in the fall time like, yeah, exactly you're like, like get out of here I don't want any more <laughs> I'm done I'm out and then there's you know me and my mom where we're like okay I have 87 recipes I'm going to give out a zucchini and it's going to come with a recipe or you're that really twisted person like my family where we take those zucchinis, we process them into one cup servings, we put them in freezer bags, and we give them away with recipe cards. Yeah. I'm like, here's a recipe card. It's only one cup. You can make yeah. zucchini bread. It tastes like dessert. Here's a recipe for, you know, pan bread. It, it's one cup of flour, and you literally need three ingredients. And then you have something that goes with soup, and it's a whole meal, and it changes things. Sometimes the part of wellness that we need to get, get around is what we think about it. Is there something wrong with having a piece of bread when you have soup? If there's not a lot to the soup, you're not going to have a lot. If you Mm -hmm. are thinking about people who have been living with that scarcity of people who are in those stereotypical Black, Indigenous, people of color circles where colonialism likes to paint us as not having enough, 
how about we give them more? We just tell them here, you know what, for like 37 cents, you can make pan bread and you can feed four people a, a meal by having soup and bread. End of story. Mm -hmm. Am I going to tell you, you shouldn't eat bread now? Am I going to tell you, oh, don't eat potatoes. Those give you diabetes. Yeah. Uh, how about I, instead I go out and I give you, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to start secretly just putting Jerusalem artichokes in people's yards. And then in the fall time, I'm going to tell them how to harvest them so that they can have them for, you know, inulin or that they can eat them like a potato. Yeah. And then one day their yard's going to be covered in Jerusalem artichokes. And I'm going to apologize because they're <laughs> exactly. like, you know, bad. Yeah. But that's the thing is we have to, healthcare is so often, this thing is wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Let's fix that. I have arthritis in my knee and my doctor, the indigenous health clinic sent me to a surgeon and the surgeon's like, you have a torn meniscus. You have arthritis to the point where your knees look like starfish. Did your doctor ever talk to you about maybe just like, I don't know, losing 20 pounds? I'm like, yeah, they told me to eat more beans and drink more water. <laughs> they wanted to send me to a surgeon to fix a problem that they could have said, here's a prescription for some vitamins and maybe like, I don't know, like some time outside. Yeah. Can I prescribe spending time outdoors? Can I prescribe, mm -hmm. you know, can I urge my clients? Uh, um, one of the best activities that I have ever seen and never been part of, but I, I helped get my friend, who, like I said, has passed away. She was a fantastic crotchety old lady. The we best. like those. Yeah, they're, they're the, the best. best. <laughs> they are the best. They know. We need a few stuff. more of them. Yeah, oh, in the world. <laughs> yeah. I filled out a grant application once for her to travel, and she went to the Slow Food Conference, mm. and it was held in Italy that year. And slow food, the whole yeah. premise of the slow food movement, is literally food that is produced from whole foods slowly. It's yeah. the antithesis of the fast food life that we live. And I said to her, I own what her name was, I own Anderson. Um, what, what are you going to talk about? And, you know, I'm thinking growing up, you know, growing food. She's traveled all over the world talking about growing food. Mm -hmm. she, she decided as a teenager, I, I've raised my siblings growing food for them. That's how we survived and got by because my parents were working on a farm. She was like, I'm getting out of here. And then she promptly met her husband and had 10 children and lived her entire life growing food for, for her kids and her community. She was yeah. a seed saver in my community. And uh, so I said to her, you know, what do you think? You're going to go to this conference. You're going to talk about slow food. She says, I don't really know any other kind of food. They're just, that's what the fancy name is that they have yeah. for what I've lived my whole life doing. I said, okay, so knowing you're bent for this sarcastic and smart alecky ways, what are you going to talk about? She said, worms. I'm like, what? She said, I'm going to talk about worms. I said, like having worms? She's like, well, I mean, yeah, I maybe that might come up. She said, no, I'm going to talk about the fact that if you have good 
solid soil, then you've got worms. She said, and if you have worms, then you have good food. If you have good food, then you have good life. Mm. I said, so you're going to tell them all that they need to get worms? Like the, the, the jokes are endless here. My brain was just alight with all of the options. And she said, probably. I'm probably going to talk about worms. I said, okay, I, that's, that's fun. And she went there and she was a guest. And when she came back, I said, how did it go? Did they like, she said, they love the worms. They were all, for, they're all about the worms. And uh, years later, I met a woman who is in Southern Ontario, uh, Kathy's Creepy Crawlers. And she runs a business now um, selling worms. And what, what she teaches is she actually has sessions and workshops and she sells kits. So what she sells is kits with starter worms, because she says, if you want the best compost to make the best soil, to have the most nutrients in your food, then you need to compost in your home. Mm -hmm. And in order to compost in your home, you need to have worms. And most people don't have really lots of worms yeah. or good worms because we don't have that agriculture yeah. being what it is, large scale farming. We've lost that the nutrients that is in food used to come from those top six inches of soil. Yeah. And when you till, it becomes like 12 and a half, sometimes 18 inches down. And yeah. it takes like years for it to come up inches at a time. She said, so if we do this in, in our homes, then worms are the answer to, to agriculture. I'm like, so another old lady who's kind of crotchety. I didn't tell her that because I didn't know her that well um she's going to hear it now in this podcast yeah, I, I know yeah probably <laughs> she probably will um telling people that worms are the answer wow and I I thought a lot about that because to go all the way back to the very first of our conversation when we're talking about health and wellness and disease mm -hmm. the very simplistic I'm going to talk about worms because if we have good soil we have good life yeah well if we feed our bodies as well as we feed those worms, we would also have a good life. Yeah. So, you know, just open the door to, to, to trying things, to being slow about things, to, to being willing to try. And this isn't one of those, you know, whole foods. So I'm going to pre-plan and have 18, you know, freezer bags in my freezer of foods that can go into a slow cooker that turn into something suspicious that no one really <laughs> the wants. The gross legs. <laughs> yeah. walks away. That yeah. looks like it's going to have legs and it's going to wander away. Yeah. I'm like, well, maybe I'll let it grow away. Then it's, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's about us understanding that we really have the chance to connect to, like you said, on a, a DNA cellular level, the things that help our bodies to be their best self. Every person hopes for that. And I don't know, like mm -hmm. some people, some people are evidence to the contrary. They don't try to be their best. They don't even try <laughs> at all. I'm sure I know that there's folks out there that don't. <laughs> but the truth is, is on some level, every part of us is trying to get back to center. Mm -hmm. And that center really is that moment of, you know, pinnacle wellness. If we can help it along we will feel so much better in so many ways mm -hmm. that we won't even need to ask the question anymore. 
And that for me is that same thing that happens when you teach one generation how to do something and they teach the next generation without you. You've closed that loop so that it doesn't have to stop ever again. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be that judgment. Eating a salad isn't because I'm on a diet. It's because I like the things I put in it. My version of salad looks like chili sometimes. I'm like, it's all vegetables, so it's salad. Yeah. (laughs) I put kale in it. Ta-da, salad. But stop stop assuming. And sometimes we need to just stop assuming that we are the only reason that we're unwell. If we could tell people, listen, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry, but you have a very terrible case of colonization. Yes. (laughs) We're going to need to monitor your blood sugar so that it could go away. And if we can just help you to to get along, you know, to make some changes, your colonization will, will get better because you'll have a different relationship to yourself and your food Mm. and your physical wellness. But it's also all those other isms that we talked about, right? It's, it's the, the oppressive system of reverse feminism and masculinity and racism and all of those other pieces, the, the poverty, the unwellness, those things are, are really the, the cause and the barrier. Because if a person feels removed from something, they no longer have that sense of responsibility. If you don't have guilt, you don't need to feel bad about having it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you are just given the opportunity to find your agency in it, mm-hmm. empower yourself. I now have a very bad case of the colonials. I'm going to change my diet because it's the first yeah. thing they recommend. You have diabetes, type 2 diabetes. You know what? Here you go. Let's change your diet, change your activity level, see what you can do. My mom has been active her entire life. She walks thousands and thousands of steps a day. She falls off the porch. She gets hit on the head and the doctor tells her she's diabetic. Mm -hmm. Don't you think maybe there's just something wrong in her system? She fell down Mm -hmm. and hurt her body. Does she still eat all the vegetables that she used to eat? Yes, she does. Interestingly enough. Telling her to go on a diet to remove those things now seems backwards, mm-hmm. but that's what has happened. You know what I mean? Like the, if we open ourselves up to understanding and we remove some of the struggles and trauma that go along with those isms, yeah. being diabetic isn't a death sentence. Mm-hmm. It's not even, it's not even a permanent sentence anymore. No. So why would we not just say, if you got a cold, yeah, here's how you treat it. Yeah, people are okay getting the flu. Yeah, they're they're completely they they accept it. They're like, yep, got the flu. It happens to anybody. If you are black, indigenous, person of color, if if you've got purple polka dots, I really don't care. If you are alive right now, the chances are good that you are part of a system of colonial import. Yeah. And you have been led to believe certain things. And that might be that your favorite item is potatoes because you are from Ireland or PEI or, you know, and that's your 
That's your historic food. Perfect. Try them out. What happens if you're like me and, you know, what if you, the foods that you're supposed to eat are bad for you? It, your body disagrees with them. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because something else is out of order. Right? These things happen. We have to understand that people can make those shifts. You can connect to culture. You can connect to land. You can connect to people. People ask me all the time, how do I start, like, how do I get into like food security work? And how do I start to address my food sovereignty? I'm like, I'll tell you this. It's super interesting. It's the weirdest thing. I want you to go out and make friends. (laughs) And they're like, what? I can't go out and make friends. talk about stuff what do you like what do you talk about food going out growing things trading food having food sharing food Mm -hmm. being near food being near the land being outside doing stuff if you're real lucky it's doing something like that you already enjoy or if you're like me then you make friends with someone who loves to hike and you're like oh my god now I'm just gonna go lay down I'll wait for you (laughs) come back for me this is too much and those are the best adventures you'll ever come across if you're in food production and you want to help other people you want to help black indigenous people of color then you're going to find a way to do that if you make friends Mm -hmm. but i also urge people to make friends because i urge them to make friends with that broken relationship inside them make friends with food yeah it is not people demonize money people demonize food yeah money never hurt anybody people with power because of money have hurt people forever exactly food has never hurt anybody except for maybe that questionable part of (laughs) pufferfish yeah but you had to have access to it in order for you to get it yeah so if it's a part of you that's why if you have a relationship a friendship with food and your body then they will treat each other well Mm -hmm. do you treat a friend badly on purpose no do you treat your body like the enemy sometimes Mm -hmm. make a friend and sometimes people have to start with themselves because they haven't been they've been a bad friend they've they've been a friend who has listened to other people and hasn't stopped to listen to what that means for them Mm, I love, I'm in love with all of this, especially because when you said, when you talked about how to potentially stop thinking from a deficit perspective, and then that made me just rethink my whole entire research question. So thank you for that. But really the question is, what are the opportunities for food sovereignty? And within this, I love how you've really, you know, touched on all the aspects that I was researching like this. It feels like this very beautiful, broad, complete wheel that you could go deep into. You can look at it from, you know, up above as well. But I love how, you know, you addressed soil regeneration, the worms, you know, that is beautiful, healthy soil. And then equals well-being, um, teaching multiple generations, like your food, form a relationship with food, make friends, share experiences, have adventures with food, um, have that relationship to yourself, find your agency. Um, you know, all of these things are all the opportunities that exist for us to, you know, slow food, you know, talking about that. I mean, it's 
um, you can obviously tell you're someone who has spent a lot of time, <laughs> your whole existence, really thinking about these really important, beautiful topics. And um, I haven't thought about it my whole life. You haven't? Asked, no, I, I'm going to, I'll just, I'll tell you one more story just because. Yes, please do. I was being interviewed once for a video. Uh, it was a podcast for the CBC and Guelph University was interviewing my mom and myself. And um, a lady said to me, like the, the producer was like, have you always known this would be your life's work? Mm. And I was horrified. I'm like, oh my God. When I hear that, I'm like, oh, I've retired. I got a gold watch and I, you know, I'm, I'm basically almost dead. And so I got this look on my face like, oh, Mufasa, no. And I, <laughs> and I kind of laughed and I was like, I'm not dead yet. And, and she misunderstood. My mom was like, she's never thought about herself as someone doing like, a life's work of something mm -hmm. and so when I think about that I it took a it took that conversation and then many people reaching out to me because they'd seen the video after which they didn't include that particular they, they included my mom's answer not mine um I realized that I didn't think about this my whole life mm -hmm. I only started thinking about this when Whoa. I looked around and I had acknowledged that this situation was occurring but I had just moved on with it Mm -hmm. um, I only started to truly think about it um, as an issue that other people wanted to hear what I had to say about when I understood that I didn't grow up that way. I didn't live that life. Mm -hmm. I didn't have those same things. I told you when I grew up, my mom, you know, produced it. We, we shopped at the health food store for rice and flour when I was a kid. That was it. Literally everything else was either grown or traded for I didn't have a relationship to the grocery store. I could have, I, I call my, I tease my mom and called her Laura Ingalls when I was little. I'm like, well, it's like you grow my, you, you sew my clothes. You, we don't shop at it. We go to the general store. So, and that's, that's what I, what I see as understanding is possible. I had very good health. I didn't have concerns for myself that way as a child. So for most of my life, I had no question about food or its relationship or that circle of life. I just was in here living it because I had grown up that way, understanding what was possible. Yeah. And now to see that other people didn't grow up with that, that's why this is a conversation for me because I yeah. didn't always think about it. I just lived my life. And I was just really extra fortunate that it was one of, of ability that my mom had been purposeful and really gave me a, an opportunity to grow up and to live in a way that most people have never known Yeah, with a connection and a respect for all of the things around us. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I still every so often think about that because when I talk to people and my mom hears me or she's around to, to listen, a lot of what I understand, what I research, what I very carefully, you know, place myself in my work is from a position of almost curiosity. Like I, I, I share what I do because of her. And I do what I do because of her, but because of what she has done and what other peoples have not had the chance to do. Mm -hmm. 
and those barriers we talked about before are are why she she is the example for me of when you say you know it sounds so hopeful well it was entirely possible 40 years ago because I was raised that way exactly it wasn't 200 years ago it wasn't 500 years ago it was 40 years ago so if it was possible 40 years ago for a young mom to do this with two kids by herself in a community as the only indigenous person in a white community in the western united states it a hundred percent is possible when we work together for everybody this is possible we can absolutely make change for ourselves we can absolutely do these things i love again all of it because number one you and i we had a very similar uh upbringing it sounds like from that big perspective of a mother that grew food from scratch um a mother that was also very curious a mother that came from africa and was the only black woman in her community growing food for her family, you know, all of those beautiful things. And it's true. If she was able to do it uh, in this context of this modern day life, you know, we can do it, but it does require us um, being curious, working together, where we just live it, where we form the relationship with our food and our land, and maybe not so much with the processed food grocery store, um, as you mentioned. So yeah, this has been Beautiful. For my first interview, I have 11 more to go with other 12, 11 other research participants, but I kind of feel like I'm complete here with you. So I want to thank you so much for your time, but is there anything else, yeah, that you wanted to leave with? Um, you know what? I mean, like I said before, I always urge people to go out and make friends, mm-hmm. um, but I also urge people to be kind. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last couple of years, I've said it more and more often, but I actually want to pointedly remind people, be kind to yourself first. Yeah. Um, there's a difference between enabling someone to to get away with things and, and to just, you know, continue to be in, in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. But being kind means knowing that you don't want to be and accepting the fact that sometimes I'm still going to make choices that are not ideal for my my health I'm still going to eat cinnamon buns I'm still going to you know what I mean like yeah and I think that's the part that's impactful to me is I know with a certainty that people can make choices and change their health but I'm not going to ever tell a person don't eat that mm-hmm because I still know that we have generations of healing to do. Yeah. And I would rather be the person who's like, oh, I love having this. I only do it a couple times a year because it's a special thing for me. And that's the moment when food takes on that ability to change from food is fuel and it's utilitarian to food is eternal. And I get to spend time with my grandma who's been dead for 10 years every time I have a cinnamon bun. That for me is enough. I don't have to be with her every day. She wasn't that spectacular to drag her around with me every day. I loved her. But being realistic about the world 
is diabetes going to go away in a day? No. Did it take one day to get it? No. Stop pushing so hard. Push for change every day. Absolutely. I, I firmly agree with that. I believe in it. I, I want to wish you luck. And I hope that when you are done all of this process and people get to listen to this, they get to hear the passion that you have. They get to see the joy that's possible in what you're proposing. And I hope that aside from changing your research question a little bit, I hope yes. that you you get to enjoy the process because the truth of it is, is what you're asking is something that people want to know the answer to already they really want to there are people out there and they will find you and you know and what this brings up just this you know the last few minutes here is number one we got to stop the oppressive behaviors that got us here to this place and so telling people don't do this do this you know again it's just segregating people it's um being oppressive where this is completely different and i understand we are probably in a massive pendulum swing, right? From people eating really clean whole foods, you know, without all the pesticides that were grown, where we had the connection to the land. And now we're just on that other side where it's like, eat a vegan diet, eat paleo, eat this, eat that. And so now the pendulum is going to come back and I see it and I can see where it's going to land in this beautiful, wholesome, loving, respectful place in this modern world. Cause it yeah. is, it is a modern world. But we can bring back all of the goodness that was there before and uphold that. Um, but we got to do it together. We got to be kind. That is 100%. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Adrian, so much for your time, for your wisdom, your knowledge, your experiences, your stories. Um, it's, uh, I think, interviews like this and having people like you who are willing to share that is going to just contribute to making this this whole world just a beautiful place to be. Well, I enjoy all parts of it. Exactly. Exactly. I am. And it's because of people like you that I am enjoying it. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It's been fantastic. Fantastic.